Welcome all to the first of a podcast series by the ACNR Journal on the occasion of its 20th anniversary. I'm Shri Kudali, a neurology registrar from East of England, and today I'm in conversation with two effervescent and important personalities for the journal, Rachel Hansford, the publisher, and Professor Barker, the founding editor. Rachel's vision for a free publication for specialists in neurosciences met with the enthusiasm of a young consultant neurologist, Roger, based at Cambridge in the year 2000. Join us on hearing the two-decade journey and story of the ACNR Journal through these pioneers. Hello, Roger and Rachel. (laughs) Hello, Shri. Hello, Rachel. How is everyone doing? Really good, thank you. Yeah, very happy. Very happy, excellent. (laughs) In the midst of a pandemic. Yep, couldn't be better. (laughs) So welcome to NeuroVoices. It's it's the first of a ACNR podcast series, and we're doing this as a 20th anniversary project through ACNR, and it was Rachel's idea. Thanks very much, Rachel, for inviting me to be the host host for this Thank you for agreeing. (laughs) And so Roger's a very special person for, for the ACNR. And I thought I'd like to ask Rachel you the first question of how ACNR started. You told me about a little office in Edinburgh. Yeah, that's right. I, did, I mean, I was working for a medical publisher in Edinburgh at the time on a cardiology publication. But um, I've got a sibling, my older brother, who had at that point had had two very serious brain injuries and I started thinking about what I could do if I was to do my own publication so I came up with the idea of doing a neurology one and um, yeah so I just started investigating it from there I'm not very good at being told what to do so I wanted to work for myself. So you used to work for um, a a medical journal? It was a very small family publisher in Edinburgh yes and they did journals that were in the same kind of format as ACNR or -hmm. magazines as they were it wasn't Mm -hmm. sort of peer-reviewed articles so I started thinking and asking questions of people and um, I think I told you about how it was rather random that I I was put in touch with Stephen Kirker because one of my colleagues on another medical journal happened to share a flight home to Ireland with him and um, when I mentioned to her that I had this idea for a neurology journal she said oh I met this neuro rehab chap on a flight I'll put you in touch with him so Steve Kirker was the link wasn't he I Mm -hmm. um yeah so and then he suggested Roger he recommended Roger as being this young up-and-coming bright spark and I think I emailed you from my office in Edinburgh while I was at work probably shouldn't have done that yeah and I think I remember having a response in about 20 minutes and nearly falling off my chair (laughs) (laughs) and you suggested coming down for a meeting so that was it you know it was it was all sort of oh it's actually happening Yeah, and then I remember getting very panicky because we had a discussion about it and I said, well, this sounds like an excellent idea. Let's get on with it. And then yeah. I think you sent me an email and said, no, I've chucked in my job. I'm ready to start on this. And <laughs> yeah. I thought, oh, my I thought, God. I thought, I thought this was just something we were doing as a bit of a jolly in our spare time. I didn't realise it was going <laughs> oh, okay. it, it to right. be Rachel's yeah. main source of income. And I remember <laughs> um, this was a great anxiety for myself. And oh, really? Oh, well, you Coles, very well. uh, uh, when he joined early on because... 
we were very worried that that for us it was just something that we very much enjoyed doing mm. and working with Rachel but we were uh, <laughs> acutely aware of the fact that this was going to have to you know pay for the food on the table yeah well, so I mean, was I'm... it actually financially <laughs> viable this as a as a prospect see it's funny because my I was very anxious as well but for different reasons because I well I mean I was anxious about whether I'd make any money but I knew that I could just go and get a job if I needed to I remember talking to you about it in your office and you asking me towards the end of the meeting, what publishing house are you with? After you'd expressed an interest in doing it and we'd kind of agreed we were going to do it. And you said, what publishing house are you with? And I thought, oh, I now have to break it to him that there actually isn't one. It's just me, this kind of complete random stranger that's rocked up and, you know, with no background in neurology, didn't know anything about it. And uh, I did sort of wonder whether I, I thought, oh, I've dragged these people into, you know, I've, I've made them agree to do it and what if it all goes wrong I, you know I, I felt like I put your name on the line that was my concern I wasn't really worried about the yeah well I never worry about that and, and certainly <laughs> 20 years ago I had no name at all so it was it was a very uh, easy thing to agree okay well, that's to do it it was perfect in fact because you know one of the things I love is being able to do things with a small team which mm. is slightly not non-establishment uh, but it, it, you know it's, it's a rather a unique operation yes. which gives you the freedom to do what you you want and uh, and you know if we had been if you had been part of a big publishing house then it would have been a big saga trying to get all this sorted out there would have been particular processes and protocols mm. and people we'd have to get involved with and it wouldn't have had the the freedom and the flexibility and the um, uniqueness, I think, which the journal had. And what I always loved about it and always have loved about it is whatever you want to do, you just do it. Yeah. So I remember early, well, in the early days, someone actually wrote a letter to object about something we'd written saying, you know, they didn't they didn't believe in what we wrote. I said, OK, we'll just write another article against that then. You know, I don't, I don't have to. I don't have to worry about you know some great yeah. editorial board or running it past the the oh. company. We just get on with it. Yeah, I know. I'd feel the same too. Really, you know. As I said at the start, I don't like being told what to do. So it was, you know, for us, it was just a case of we like the idea of that. We'd have chats a bit like this, and well, yeah, let's do this. Oh yeah, great idea. We'll do that. Yeah. And so we would just do it. Invite. You know, I think we talked to you about some of the people that we invited to write and got big names to write for us didn't we and there was no I had no fear because I didn't know who any of these people were so I wasn't in awe of anyone well um, people were very generous early on so I mean yeah. we had people like Angela Vincent and Peter Gatesby mm. and such like who were who were writing very early on for it and and of course the problem was it, it, it you know it wasn't it wasn't a um a recognized publication because it was entirely new it wasn't on PubMed it didn't really count towards your CV uh but of course these people didn't really need it for that but it was very generous of them to write what mm. were very good articles mm. and and the whole essence of the journal which of course these people very much uh subscribe to was the idea that you bring science to neurologists and neurologists uh you know uh the other way around so 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 that, that you have this sort of interaction and therefore articles have to be accessible from both sides of it you have to if you're a scientist you need to understand neurology article and if you're a neurologist you have to understand the science mm -hmm. and therefore they can't be very long uh, they don't have to be authoritative because they're only short but they have to be engaging accurate and up-to-date and people quite like that and you know most people moan when you ask them to write things but you say well if it's 1500 words I mean you can knock that off in an hour uh, mm -hmm. if you know what you're talking about so it's um yeah I mean it, we you know we were very uh, fortunate in the early days that people signed up to it 
and it, it and there was nothing else that was there at the time you were talking about enthusiasm and you know just getting on with things and i do remember sitting in your office that first day and you were discussing what we would put in this journal or this magazine as we were calling it then and you just had a piece of a4 paper and put some columns on it and said well we could ask so and so and we'll do this and we'll do that and i just looked at it and i thought oh okay so that is actually the first issue he's just planned it there so we need <laughs> to actually crack on and do it but yeah. you, you literally did it and then i said well what what will we call it then and you just reeled off the name and that was it oh okay and you said it call it acnr for short yeah, I mean, it was a bit, it was, I remember discussing it with Anne Rosser, actually, I was down in Cardiff discussing this whole idea. And I remember sitting in a kitchen over a cup of tea discussing this. And I think, you know, these sort of ideas came together around the, the title of it. Uh, and it's quite good, because what you really wanted it to do, well, the other reason we quite liked it was ACNR is very similar <laughs> to lots of other very big journals, like American Journal of whatever. <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh the american so what would that be uh you know american what i don't quite know what it is but it's obviously an american journal so it must be very important <laughs> very important. big and yeah. so it sort of fitted in with the genre of, yeah. of journals which which had those uh, similar titles really what else happened in that first meeting so columns were drawn on a piece of paper and uh you came up with a title what was in the first issue well, I would have to go back and check uh, to my mem what I remember, but I'm not entirely sure. Ooh. I thought Angela Vincent wrote something on Mars theme Gravis. And I thought Peter Gatesby may have written something on Migraine, but that may have been in the second. Yeah, that was, no, we had Christopher Bowes, Manjit Matharu and Peter Gatesby, and Angela Vincent wrote, Mark Manford wrote his management, start of his management series on epilepsy. Alistair Coles wrote his Anatomy Primer in the first issue. And Stephen Kirker wrote the rehab article. So it's a nice combination of um, lots of different things to do with neuroscience and neurology and rehab. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, it, you know, it's always been a great passion of mine to, as I say, to bring, to bring, to have short articles on things which are interesting, which are science, neurology, neuroanatomy. And of course, having a vehicle by which to do it was terrific, really, because you know, in those days, there was a, there was a, um, a course that Alastair Comston ran, which was neuroscience for clinicians, which which was very well attended during the 1990s. So Alastair set it up probably 89, 90. And I used to go along and I thought it was absolutely terrific. And then it slowly disappeared because people weren't interested in it. I thought this was great sadness that people didn't want to do this. So this was a fantastic way by which to do it. So to be honest, I wasn't, of course, I was a younger man then. And with Rachel's enthusiasm, energy, <laughs> you're a bit fearless really because at the end they think well we'll just go for it yeah and this has always been my way you know uh, you know in the past i've done uh, even more ridiculous things where i've tried to persuade even more serious people to do things i tried when i was a medical student to make a whole series with the bbc and almost managed to pull it off before they realized i was a medical student but in the process <laughs> of that i'd asked um Jonathan Miller, the late Jonathan Miller, whether he'd present it with me, but he was too busy. David Attenborough got a very nice reply from him saying he was uh, busy for the next five or 10 years. It wasn't really his <laughs> thing. So so I was very struck by the fact that that actually you can be put off doing things for fear that you will fail and will anyone engage with it? Mm. Um, so you think, well, just go for it. And it's just well, amazing. Always, how... Yeah, that was always my feeling was I didn't want to get to be, I would say 60, but that doesn't sound quite so old these days, but you know, I didn't want to, I didn't want to get to be older and think I could have done that. Like, you know, I didn't want to die wondering what would have happened if I tried. Yeah. 
And we also wanted it to be, it had to have a unique place. And we also wanted the best people to write things. So one of the things I was slightly allergic to was there were lots of free circulars that go around, which has been one of the problems with the ACNR initially was people just mm -hmm. thought it was uh, one of these free circular uh, circulars, you know, goes around, which is um, doesn't have anything of any great substance in it. And so what I didn't yeah. want was to, was to read an article on migraine uh, with no disrespect to the authors, but somebody you've never heard of who's in a junior job somewhere in Britain, for example, and you sort of think, well, it's obviously a nice thing to have written, but I don't know why I should pay particular attention to it, apart from the fact they've done their homework, whereas someone who's a, a world-leading authority on it, it somehow gives it more clout. And so we were very keen to make sure that the journal slightly punched above its weight and that it was regarded as a serious neurology, neuroscience, rehab journal, and not just another one which was a vehicle for all the companies to advertise their uh, drugs in, interleaved with, uh, between their adverts for a few um, articles. And that, and that was quite a tension to begin with because... Yeah, we did have I, to negotiate that, didn't we? We did. And also because Alastair and I were very keen, I remember, because Alastair joined very early on, we were very keen on just having the whole thing as, as articles. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, when we suddenly realised that it was Rachel's livelihood, you couldn't have a journal um, that had no, no advertising in it because also you had to pay for it. So the fact you're not part of a publishing house, someone's got to pay for it to go on a publication. <laughs> and, and that, you know, that's, I mean, it's not vast amounts of money, but it's clearly money. And you've got to find that from somewhere. So I don't know how that worked, Rachel. I don't know how, how we managed it because it, it was sort of, it was through your contacts we got it. Well, I mean, I built up a list before I started. I had ideas by looking at who was advertising at conferences and so on. So I just phoned people. I mean, I still remember making the first phone calls from my tiny, my, my flat in Edinburgh. I had the tiniest little desk. It was about a metre wide, a corner of my dining room. And I remember picking up the phone and my I mean I don't know if I should confess to this but my hand was shaking because I was so scared because I knew there was so much riding on it but the other it very important thing you brought to it was the was the professional finish mm. and the style of it well, so I I mean, you can see from it. that very first issue yeah that you know and you have to remember at that stage two, uh, 20 years ago that most journals, so like the JNMP, you know, would just be a list of articles on the front. Brain used to have just, I mean, you know, there was nothing uh, that was aesthetically pleasing or attractive about any of those mm. journals. And so making it attractive uh, was an important thing. And, and that was another thing you had great expertise in without diluting out the, the, uh, the message. And also, as I was saying, getting it published to a very high spec without it costing mm -hmm. a fortune. Well, I think we were lucky that we were just on the cusp then. I was explaining this to Sri the other day about um, direct from PDF printing. It was just at the point where everything moved to doing everything digitally. So I was able to just... Um, I'm Donna, who did the original design for the journal mm -hmm. and is still involved with it now and does the layout 20 years later, um, is vastly experienced. And so she would just organize it all and create the PDFs. And we sent it to the printer who was in Wales. That's, um, and I still use that printer. And it was all done and they, they posted it all out. I never saw it. I just had a few spare copies, came back to my tiny little flat in Edinburgh. And so I said to Sri, I really felt like the Wizard of Oz. It was really strange. I felt like I was in this tiny little desk behind a big curtain pretending to be some big outfit and if anyone pulled the curtain back they'd have been absolutely horrified to just see me sitting there cowering in the corner you know, Harry Potter and AC&I you see yeah, very, well, sim very similar exactly there we go <laughs>
I mean, listening to this, it, you make it sound all very simple. So, Rachel, you had a strong motivation. You had the idea. Roger was involved. He started planning the content. Um, Alison Coles was then involved. You had someone for graphics. You found a publishing house. And is that all that's required? I think at the time for what we did, because what we actually launched was a magazine, wasn't it? Not a journal in the sense nowadays, I think launching a medical journal mm -hmm. is a, a different prospect. Mm -hmm. um, I, yeah, I mean, it was quite straightforward, wasn't it? You had I don't the think ideas. there was, I mean, the big, the big anxiety was, uh, I mean, um, would we get people to write for it? Mm -hmm. uh, and you could call in favours for the first few issues. Uh, not that, you know, I had anything particularly, uh, you know, with Angela and Peter, but, you know, you, you, you could ask people you knew who were friendly towards you. So the worry was, could we sustain it? Mm -hmm. uh, could we get people interested? Because the other problem was we didn't want to put all this effort in if then people sort of say, well, what is, I've never heard of this. And, and it was a problem. So there were various colleagues we had who would put it straight in the bin because you know it came in the packet it was another one of those magazines mm -hmm. i get lots of those so so it was it was straightforward and it, it, like everything it's like when you start research you know you all start research you have a research question you think well if i've answered that what's my next one well i don't have another one that's it i'm finished uh, and of course the research then generates more questions and and so so sustaining the journal was going to be one of the issues could we really come up with enough ideas to keep it topical interesting um uh so that so there were anxieties about it but but to be honest we didn't we didn't really worry about it because um i mean as i say apart from worrying about rachel's livelihood we sort of thought well we can get take it wherever we want and do whatever we want with it and there was a sort of i think a sort of um uh a sort of spirit within the sort of neurology community i mean i'd only just become a consultant at that point hmm. uh, and there are a lot of us who just become consultants at that point uh, and so I think there was a sort of sense we can do lots of this stuff together and it's great fun. And, and so, there, so we were a bit sort of um, didn't worry, worry too much about what the establishment thought. And we weren't competing with anybody. So I didn't feel we were treading anyone's toes. So, so it was pretty straightforward because it was very, it, it worked very well because I knew nothing about publishing and still know nothing about publishing and that whole side of it. Uh, and Rachel didn't really know about the neurology community or the rehab community. So I could worry about what I was doing yeah. and I didn't have to do anything else. So, I mean, the only issues were it was, it was quite a bit of work because obviously you had to chase all these people up, which Rachel did basically without uh, us having to do it. But then you'd have to read all these articles mm -hmm. and then you'd have to proofread them. Uh, and so it was quite a lot of work getting the, each issue done. And so that could get a bit stressy. I remember in those early days, you know, you'd suddenly get the the final PDF of the whole journal, which you then have to read in, you know, 24, 48 hours mm -hmm. to try and pick things up. Um, but no, I, and, it, and, and because, as I say, it had no structure, if you like, it was wonderful. You know, let's do journal reviews. Okay, let's do general. Let's do confident. Let's do confident reviews. Mm -hmm. And things, reviews, haven't, things haven't changed that much because now we go, let's do podcasts. Yes, yeah. great idea. <laughs> Over the last 20 years, has, how do you think the, the journals evolved? Or, or, or is, is the main theme creativity? Well, probably Rachel's the best one to answer that. I mean, Well, I don't you know, because you were the editor for 10 years. I was going to say that earlier when you said about being worried about having ideas. You were a constant sort of barrage of ideas, is how I always remember it. Every year it would be like, well, right, what can we come up with? And 
you'd come up with a whole raft of other article ideas. Yeah. No, I mean, I, 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 it was always it was always important to look to do other things, some of which worked and some didn't. So I was quite interested in art and neurology at one point. I got my son to write something because he was doing art, and it was very interesting. I was very interested in in how art, how neurological illnesses play out in art, <laughs> but that never came off because he was pretty useless at writing any more articles. <laughs> uh, and and you know nobody really engaged with that. So so some things never. But it was always looking for other ideas. I mean, I'd made a decision that I wouldn't do it indefinitely because I think, as with everything. <laughs> I think if you stay too long doing something, it, it sort of loses something and mm. it's important to hand it on. And also, um, 10 years ago, I took on the editorship of the Journal of Neurology. And I remember spending a lot of time agonising about that because Alastair Compton was very was very um, supportive of me taking on the Journal of Neurology. And I didn't. I thought, would it compromise what I do with the OCNR? So it didn't. Uh, but after a year, I thought it's probably this is a sort of sign to hand it on to someone mm -hmm. else, which is why I handed it on to, to Mike Zandi. Um, so I think you know part of the skill is is getting it to evolve and to have that sort of sense of um you know moving with the times and and changing whilst also keeping its identity mm. so i think if i moved on and completely pulled out of it and rachel had handed over to somebody else i think there was a risk it would have it would not be the same as it is now um and obviously the people you so mike is a bit like uh me and alistair and obviously has worked with myself with Alistair <laughs> and myself so so you know knows the type of style and had been involved with the journal prior mm -hmm. to taking it over so so I, I mean it you know obviously I read it every time it comes out and I look at it and and you know to me it's recognizable as the journal it was mm. 20 years ago when we started it there was no such thing as a no such thing as an H index and and, and such no. like. I mean, you you needed visibility, which is what PubMed gives you, because you know you want to look something up, you just put it in PubMed, yeah. you find it, and then and then that would raise the profile of the journal. But actually, uh, I mean, the, the the impact of a journal isn't really measured so much now by whether you find it on PubMed, but how much it hits social media, uh, mm -hmm. and also there's now a huge move in the in the research community to open access so yeah. everything just gets dumped in them so i suspect that the acnr you know will maintain its visibility and probably increase because the nature of the articles are such that people mm -hmm. just bung things in on google now and find what they want well we have signed up with crossref as well and we're um listed indexed in the doaj so that only just happened at the end of last year so that will hopefully make a difference yeah. but that was always the problem was was and you know Rachel had very clever ways of trying to assess this how much visibility do we have because of course if I came to you Sheree 20 years ago and say what do you think of the ACNR and you say you know the, the journalist uh, I helped set up with Rachel you'd go oh yes I love it I love it it's fantastic yeah it's really good I read it every week because you're not going to say to me uh what i never heard of it <laughs> was that the thing it's absolute rubbish so people you know if you ask people who know you they're going to say things yeah. so how do you find out the people who don't talk to you and don't know you what yeah. they're doing with it Whereas no. Graham Lennox was very straightforward. He said he just puts it straight in the bin because he didn't know there was anything in it. <laughs> did he stop putting it in the bin after that? Please tell me that he stopped. Oh, I'm pretty certain he did. Yeah. He at least right, took we... it out of his packet. So, so you've had people like um, Oliver Sacks, Miller Fisher. Yes. Right for the ACNR. Yeah, that was great fun, actually. We decided, <laughs> decided that we would try and get... So we had um, uh, Alan Emery of Emery Dreyfus, right, to begin with. And mm -hmm. then... Um, Ah, uh, blanking on the chap who did central pontine myelin analysis. Um, he's a very famous neuropathologist. 
and he and I asked him if he would write about central pontine myelolysis and his opening paragraph remember says that you could have asked me to write about and then this about 25 very classical neurological conditions which he had described mm -hmm. and then gives this excellent description of it and I remember writing to him Raymond Adams I think it was and I said mm -hmm. could you could you do a series for us he said uh, something like I'm 94 <laughs> I don't I don't <laughs> subscribe to writing series at my age um, but it was terrific. And that one by Miller Fisher, I shall never forget that article mm. about how they actually described Miller Fisher uh, syndrome simply through the, the contact. So, yes, I mean, you could just write to these people and, mm. and ask them. And, and um, mm. I mean, you know, a bit as we were saying earlier, most people were very happy to contribute. I think in some ways they were also a bit puzzled. They had no idea quite who these people were and quite what this journal was. But they seemed very enthusiastic and they would accept anything. So. A bare-faced cheat goes a long way through, that would be my yeah. advice. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely. And um, Roger, for you, what were the highlights of, um, of the journal over the years, do you think? Uh, I mean, I think the highlight for me was just filling a gap, really. I mean, it was something I'd always had of a, a passion to do this. You know, my career has always been about trying to marry these two disciplines which which clearly seem to marry together uh, and I felt this was a way in which we could do it so for me the high points were that that this was a vehicle by which you could do what you wanted to do you could shape it and do whatever you wanted and also I think you know getting these great people to write their little stories so that some of the two things that really struck me over years one was um uh, those articles that you mentioned. The other were people's personal experiences. So people who had had uh, neurological type problems and then had written them up. And some of those were terribly moving and terribly impressive. So I think the other aspect of medicine, uh, now I'm sounding very granddaddy, is about you know what it's like to live with something rather than just diagnose and treat it and trying to understand what people go through. And, and, you know, there were two cases in particular. One is a very uh, lovely patient I have who wrote about her neuropathy, hereditary neuropathy, and, and how when she was very young with this, people thought she had some major problem. And in fact, you know, people, um, uh, she was going to get married and then they said, I can't marry you because, you know, because of this problem you've got. And the other was a lady I had who had herpes and uh, uh, looks like she's going to die with it in Adambrooks. And I treated her and she made, to all intents and purposes, a, a complete recovery. But she couldn't recognise anybody. And she wrote this amazing account about, you know, going home in a car with someone who sounded familiar. She didn't know quite who they were, but she just knew she had to trust them. And then she had this story of where, you know, she would go and watch her son play football. And she knew it was her son because everybody else had walked off the field and he was the last one left. And so here was somebody who, to us, brilliant outcome. We'd done a terrific job. And of course, you know, in, in some ways we had, but she was left with this deficit, mm. which was devastating. And so, uh, you know, these aspects of, of, um, of people's stories, I thought were real high point. And you didn't really see them anywhere else. And, mm. you know, I was terribly grateful for the people who were so honest and writing about these uh, accounts of their conditions and, and the sort of experiences they had. So, so I think it was those opportunities to hear the stories behind the syndromes to hear the stories behind people's conditions coupled to all the ideas that that came through that, that were for me the real high point and you know the fact it's still there 20 years on i mean that is a pretty amazing achievement and and what was the wacky, wackiest idea i mean to be honest with you you know the sort of wackiest ideas were expecting people to write you know these famous people to write 
accounts of their syndromes really i mean because yeah. all of them were fairly senior in years and all of them were probably pretty busy so i think those were probably it i mean what we never wanted to do was end up adopting something that was a lot of work yeah that's right and, and going to be a bit not very rewarding really mm. and, and take away from the fun of it yeah, I, always, I, I always viewed it as a bit like a sort of little commando unit so things like brain or you know a whole battalion so they yeah. move very slowly but they're very powerful what we are is a little you know commando group coming yeah. you know flying low deliver some you know stunning piece of uh, action and then off we go <laughs> and you can't catch us because you don't know where we're going to appear next with what <laughs> And this commander unit marched on into the new century with some exceptional pieces from the wider neuroscience community and is ever hungry for new ideas. We hope you enjoyed listening to that, certainly for me. It was insightful to learn the workings of a publishing house. However, I couldn't let go of Professor Barker yet. In the next podcast, I interview him on his journey from the very beginning to becoming a world-renowned academic neurologist. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned and goodbye. Thank you.